Welcome to Startup Hacks, a We Global podcast. We explore the stories and secret strategies that women entrepreneurs use to save time and money when bootstrapping and building their businesses. I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina, and today I'm excited to welcome Katika Roy, who is a gender economist and the CEO of Pipeline, an award-winning SaaS company that leverages artificial intelligence to identify and drive economic gains through gender equity. The Pipeline platform was named one of Time Magazine's Best Inventions in 2019 and Fast Company's 2020 World's Most Innovative Companies. In 2020, Katika was named the 2020 Colorado Entrepreneur of the Year, and her articles in World Economic Forum, NBC, Fast Company, Fortune, Forbes, Bloomberg, Huffington Post, and others have garnered well over 1 billion impressions. So as you can see, she is just your regular gal. So welcome, Katika. It's great to have you on the show. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Well, it is truly my pleasure, and thank you so much for making the time to do so. I I really wanted to start the show off by giving the audience an opportunity to really understand who you are, where you came from, your family story. It's such an incredibly touching story, and I think for so many of us, myself included, who are not from the United States or whose families are not from America, mm-hmm. and had that immigrant story to really appreciate the journey and how you can just, you know, reach supreme heights as you have and continue to do. Thank, well, thank you for having me. I, that is such a big part of who I am. So I'm the, a daughter of an uh, of an immigrant and a refugee. I'll tell you a little bit about both my parents' stories. My, obviously, quickly, but my my mother was an immigrant uh, from Britain. She was actually an orphanage at the age of 18 months. She was born in the in 1939 on uh, the Isle of Guernsey, which is in closer proximity to France, the main, mainland England. And when uh, France fell to the German army in 1940, Prime Minister Churchill doubted his ability to defend the Channel Isles, and so he evacuated them. And my mom was the youngest of five children. She was separated from her mom and her siblings. And uh, so so what, sorry, I missed a part of that. One of the things that uh, Churchill did was actually evacuate the islands. And so my mom was one of the children that was evacuated and she was separated from her mom and four siblings placed into an orphanage and adopted a year later. And so a lot of, yeah. And, um, And so she was adopted into a lovely family for sure. But I think, you know, a lot of her growing up and her mom had actually been a, a mother at 15. My my mom was the last of her children and she had five kids by the time she was 22. Not my mother, my grandmother. Wow. And so, yeah. And so I think, you know, my mom came here when she was 20, 21, when she was an emancipated adult to the United States for opportunity and equality. And my father uh, actually was a refugee. So he escaped from Hungary after the fall of the 1956 revolution. And he decided that it was actually better to risk his life and the lives of his three daughters. So my three eldest sisters, who at the time were three, seven, and eight. And they walked across a minefield. They crossed the border into Austria and arrived to a refugee camp when uh, President Eisenhower sent Air Force One 
to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the U.S. on Christmas Day, 1956, and they were on that plane. And so one of the things that I often think about and, and is this idea that whatever I'm going through, I was actually talking to one of our investors today about this, is that whatever I'm going through, it's still a privilege because the frame of reference that I have for the difficulties and whatever the issues are that I'm going through is that they're all a privilege because the frame of reference for me is the decision that my father made. And what, what I was raised with and my siblings were raised with was really this idea that we had an obligation to give back, that we had been privileged to, uh, some of us either be born or, or uh, be raised in this country. And so we had an obligation to do something with what was given to us. Well, um, you know, for, for the listeners who um, may not know you, I would encourage you to get to know Katika Roy, Google her, and the work that you are doing on behalf of women and um, around the whole topic of diversity and inequity is really incredible and to be commended. So I um, I want to use our time wisely, and I definitely want to talk to you about um, the Startup Hacks piece, but I want to give you an opportunity to discuss um, your current journey and what you're really focused on now. I know obviously you you started Pipeline and it's become a very successful company and has really become a platform for the work that you're doing. But there seems to be a real broader conversation that you're having publicly that's incredibly well-timed. <laughs> well, that's it was also incredibly well-researched. So uh, before I, I launched Pipeline, I actually uh, I did a 100-page market feasibility study on the actual concept of starting the company. So I, I did a fair amount of research before I launched the company. But the idea, you know, Pipeline's brand message and obviously my broader brand message is really around gender equity, not as a social, social issue, though we do believe that it is but also uh, gender equity as a massive economic opportunity the, that as companies and countries, and we've really seen this take hold this year in 2020 with COVID-19 and the economic fallout and the renewed calls for racial justice, that we, that, that um, this is actually not only about the right thing to do, it's actually this massive economic opportunity that is fundamentally about equity for all. And so we talk about that in terms of, you know, what the American taxpayer is actually paying for uh, women to be paid inequitably, what it's costing us this year in our economic recovery when we don't actually invest equitably in women and particularly female-led households, and beginning to move the conversation forward in really two fronts. One, so that, that women aren't sort of sidelined to these women's issues, right? Women's issues are economic issues, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. So that's right. one piece. But also we tend to be kind of pigeonholed to just a few issues. But in actual fact, all is almost all issues can be viewed through the gender lens. And that just doesn't, not only for women, but also for men. And so we have had a lot of conversations uh, both with elected officials and public policy officials and uh, others um, about this topic. And and what has the reaction been? I mean, do you find you obviously developed um, a really great AI product that is used to really assess 
um, or evaluate how um, companies are doing against these metrics. Do you find that it's an easy sell or are people still resistant to the idea? We have seen an acceleration of that this year uh, in particular. You know, there was a lot of interest and in, in push forward from companies before. They were largely companies that had already done some measure of work. So there are thousands of companies that have actually signed a public pledge committing to gender equity. The next step after that is what have you actually done to, to live up to that pledge? And for the companies that have really tried to measure this, uh, typically they start with the pay gap, not always. Uh, the other thing that they'll start with is representation. What they find is that it's a lot harder than they thought it was. It's not just a matter of measurement. How do you actually move the decisions forward and the, particularly the people decisions? And there was talk about this earlier this year, particularly with the renewed calls for racial justice, that over $2 billion has been do donated to racial justice causes, which is certainly very, very important. We also need to couple that with investments within companies' workforces you know, for their employees and moving uh, women and people of color, particularly women of color, up through the ranks in companies. And so we have seen an acceleration this year, and, and my hope is that going into 21, we'll be able to really accelerate that even further. And was Pipeline your first startup, or were there was there any other entrepreneurial activity that preceded this? This was my first startup. I was a corporate person through and through, you know, my last job was as a global vice president for a large enterprise company. I actually had a dad who was an entrepreneur, so I was not predisposed <laughs> to being an entrepreneur. He had certainly had some successes and some failures. And I thought this is an, a fairly um, rocky way to, uh, to live your life. And so I spent 23 years in the corporate world before launching Pipeline. And the math for me was really this idea that I was at a point in my career that I could take the risk of going to be an entrepreneur and not being paid and investing in the company. And that if the worst happened and for some reason it failed, I actually had enough time to kind of make that up and go back to the corporate world. Thankfully, that's not the case, but still, that's certainly something. One of my friends who... Um, is an investment manager says, you have to know what your ripcord line is. Like you've got to know what, what, like how far are you willing to go? Uh, right. be, you know, be, and I think that's a really good, it's, it's a difficult conversation to have because you don't want to uh, predispose yourself to failure, but it is also, it's not just a stress on you. Like I have a family. So that was a conversation I needed to have with my husband and, and, um, and, you know, we needed to continue to have, but I, I'm not, um, I, I probably was an intrapreneur. Like I was always, in the corporate world, my nickname was Special Ops. <laughs> and the reason was because I would, like, they would essentially give me all the projects that nobody else wanted. That, that largely said, right? That largely sat in two categories. One where they were either at risk of failing, right? It was off track, you know, over budget, over timeline, or it was net new. So high risk of failure. And 
I would actually bring those to fruition, operationalize them and hand them off. Like I loved that. That that was something I really enjoyed doing. So I probably had that, but I also had that coupled with kind of a high need for security, right? Which is not typically something you think of as an entrepreneur, but I actually think that piece has made me a better entrepreneur um, in terms of, you know, fiscal responsibility and, and those kinds of things. And was it the idea for the company that spurred you to leave your corporate um, secure position and, and venture down this path? Or was it just the desire to be more independent and do your own thing? It was my experience in the corporate world, actually. So I talked a little bit about my parents' experience, you know, obviously being the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee. I'm also the youngest of six kids, uh, five girls, one boy. I watched my sisters and their families struggle because of their lack of economic opportunity due to the due to gender inequity. A yeah. lot of the things that are the legacy of justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like, um, you know, not being able to, you know, you used to be in my lifetime, you could be fired for being pregnant. You couldn't get mm -hmm. a credit card without a male cosigner. You couldn't get a loan without a male cosigner. And, and I watched my sisters struggle. And I remember as a little girl, obviously they're, a fair bit older than I was thinking, I just never want to do that. And then the other piece was my experience. So I'm a breadwinner mom for a family of four. My husband is a stay at home dad has been for the last 12 years. And I also fought to be paid equitably twice and one. Wow. And yeah, and that had a lot. And, and you know, I inherited other teams as well. So I inherited all of their inequities. And, you know, really when I, after the first time I fought to be paid equitably, I committed that if you reported to me, I would do everything in my power to ensure that both you were paid equitably, but you also had equity of opportunity. And I think as I went along, and I have kind of a varied background, you know, I've got a three degrees, an undergraduate degree in political science and legal studies emphasis. I've got a master's degree in computer science and cognitive science, and then an MBA, which probably set me up perfectly to launch the company. Yeah. But I really started to think through what could I do to solve this problem? And if I was going to launch a company, I was certainly interested in making money, but I was really interested in solving this problem and, mm -hmm. and talking about this issue differently than had ever been done really before. And that was my goal. And I think quite frankly, I mean, certainly we haven't accomplished gender equity yet, but we have done a lot of very good work to move the conversation forward, to close gaps with our customers, um, et cetera. Right, right, right. Well, I, as you know, I completely relate to that pain point. And it's interesting how there've been so many amazing women that I've met in the past year who, all feel so strongly about it and are all really approaching the problem differently with different solutions, which is great because we do have to attack it from from all from all sides. So once you um, started your company, I know you had kind of your idea of what your ripcord timeline was going to be and how much time you were going to dedicate before you said, OK, enough. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of share with our listeners, um, despite that you probably didn't have to worry so much about like, okay, I have 50 grand, how do I stretch it um, yeah. to to build my MVP and, and, and get someone to take me seriously. But, but just more broadly, I mean, what are some of the efficiencies that you perhaps even still use today, whether it be about time management, whether it be about 
leadership or resource management. I mean, I, I think that sometimes people think about hacking as a way to kind of bootstrap something, mm-hmm. but I, I tend to look at it slightly differently. I tend to think of it more as a lifestyle, which is, you know, there's no greater resource than your time yep. because you want to be able to enjoy your time, whether it's with your kids or with your friends or with yourself. And you don't want to be wasteful of it. So I'm always so it's an area that really fascinates me and how people approach their lives, sometimes in a much more efficient way. So time is yes, I will answer your question. The thing that's really important to understand is that time is the only constant variable. It is the Mm. variable that you cannot change. And early in my career, I did the math and I figured out that essentially that there are only, I didn't do the math on how many hours in a day, but what I figured out pretty early in my career is that I should go as far as I possibly could up the corporate ladder because time is a constant variable. It is unchanging, which means that I can change how much I earn, but I, you know, like you can only ever work so many hours in a day. There are only ever 24 hours in a day. So I should try and make as much money as I possibly could within that time bound. Mm -hmm. So, and that, that was a very much a constant, the things that, um, I, I think a lot of my corporate experience helped me with pipeline and I was able to take the things in terms of operational efficiency and structure that I had built and implement those at pipeline. So there's a, we actually have a very consistent structure uh, across our company where, uh, for instance, we have internal meetings on Monday, Tuesdays are meetings that we have with our external vendors. I try not to have as many meetings on Wednesday and Thursday because you always have this really long to-do list and then you can actually get through some of those things. And then Friday, um, we've got, uh, we look at sales and those kind of things, but then also we have other meetings. And I think, having that very standard structure uh, really helped us to measure what we were doing, but also helped people to have a sense of predictability, particularly in a startup that is very, very unpredictable. You know, startups are not like large companies, right? You're not, (laughs) you you don't have economies of scale. You can live and die by one deal and whether or not it's closed. And so this sense of, reliability really helped. One of the things that we do at Pipeline is we look at the our metrics through the lens of the customer. What is the customer journey? And so we look at those, you know, kind of typically in terms of um, top of funnel, middle of funnel, bottom of funnel, customer success, implementations, product uh, development. And those are actually KPIs that we measure and we look at them every single week. And everybody, own, only one person owns a KPI. And so I think there's a, a very scalable but consistent structure and metrics to those structure that has helped us be very consistent in our approach. Um, I mean, that, that, that's certainly one thing uh, that we have der- done in terms of, um, of, uh, of hacking time, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I keep a very structured to-do list in terms of what can I actually get done on different days. And I I know what those things are based on how many meetings I have and how many white space I have in how much white space I have in my calendar. It doesn't mean that I'm not flexible with those things, but I think that consistency has actually helped us quite a bit. 
And then I think the other thing for us, particularly in a startup, is having the folks who have the right mindset. Being in a startup is really, it's not what you read about in TechCrunch or, you know, um, VentureBeat. It's very different. And there are people who like the idea of being a start in a startup, but not really the reality of being in a startup, which is very different. And so we have gotten very good at being able to uh, test and identify folks who can actually fit in in um, in a startup structure, not just pipeline, but sort of generally what it's like to be in a startup mm-hmm. uh, versus kind of like the idea of um, being a startup, but maybe may not be willing to change, uh, you know, change hats, right? So, you know, at Pipeline, you could do many different things in a given day, right? You're not, and so I think that's the other thing, right? You know, you could be a customer success and then you're on sales and then you're working on tech implementation, whatever that is. And so we've gotten very good at who are the people who maybe this is your primary role, but I might need you to step into something else. And you're willing to do that because you understand the bigger purpose of what you're doing. And I, and, and I, you know, I certainly have had some failures in that regard, but we've gotten very good at at doing that. And do you find any, any, and I wouldn't say any regrets, but have there been any um, big surprises for you when you headed down this path and you thought, Oh, this is going to be great because I'll be able to do this, or this is going to be really hard. Were there any surprises, good or bad? I, you know, it's interesting. The thing that I, I have an MBA, I mentioned that I was a global vice president before I launched a pipeline and, you know, had a a very successful corporate career. I knew that it would be harder to raise money as a female founder, but I thought, well, I'm smart. I have an MBA. I can read the books. I've got a pretty good pedigree in terms of my corporate experience. You know, it'll be hard, but it won't be. It won't be as hard. <laughs> and I was right. totally wrong about that. I was completely wrong about that. I had no idea how hard it is to raise money as a female founder. I mean, it's hard to raise money for anyone, but in particular for female founders. And that yeah. has been a total, I mean, talk about um, growing your grit muscle. I mean, that yeah. has been grit and like, you know, reframing. And I think that has been definitely a surprise and something that I have certainly, I don't think I have it all figured out, but I, I've gotten uh, much better at it over the first uh, three and a half years. I was talking to a Techstars cohort um a few weeks ago that they're brand new startups. And I, you know, I said to them, I think, I think back to my first pitch deck and it's, it's super embarrassing. <laughs> it's, you know, just, I'm like, Oh my gosh. And they talk about, it, it's like walking around with jam on your face, you know? And I, I had a good friend who was in Silicon Valley and he and I had actually done some work together when I was in the corporate world. And I said, Oh great. Well, like, you know, I'll pitch him and right. You know, and he, yeah. <laughs> it's like, he said to me, Katika, that's the jankiest demo I've ever seen. And, um, and you know, I appreciate, I mean, it was, you know, it was certainly a bit of an ego blow for me, but I appreciated the folks who were willing to, you know, give me feedback and it, it certainly made me better. And, I, you know, we are, I mentioned Techstars, we're a Techstars company and I, I've been so grateful um, for that experience and to be involved with them because they've, they've been so helpful, um, you know, both in the times when I, needed to pick myself up off the floor and, you know, soldier on, if you will, but also in the celebrations of all the really great things that we've had. 
What do you think? Um, what do you think was kind of a pivoting point for you in terms of the capital raising? Do you think it was just a matter of time and number of meetings, or was there a new strategy, new approach, a new you when you landed that deal? The thing that had, well, I think two things that I would say. One is it's really good to get somebody who is not involved in the day to day business of your company. So for instance, like we work with, with the managing director at Techstars to help you frame your capital raise. Like I would definitely, if you're a startup, try and get somebody who's an advisor, who is in, who's either raised money themselves. So most of the managing directors and tech stars actually came from being founders themselves, but somebody who really understands that world on both sides, both as an entrepreneur and a, as a, a, a venture capitalist and can really help you see what you have. I, I think one of the things that can be very pronounced in the in the um, in the startup world is you know we talk about imposter syndrome right in, yeah. in the, but in the startup world that's like imposter syndrome on steroids because you're <laughs> I mean it's you you know you're getting rejected from from everybody right like you yeah. will, you're doing well if you if you talk to ten investors and you get one yes that's actually a good thing like that's that, actually that's better. Actually- that's actually excellent. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, it's excellent. So you have to, and 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 that's it's it, it and that's what you have to be really be ready for. And so the thing that I learned was one to talk to folks who, you know, really those trusted advisors who could help me think through this. Folks I could also call when I was just having a really bad day. But the other was that it is largely a confidence game. Like yeah. m- raising money is kind of like. Um, you know, markets, public markets, the Dow Jones, New York Stock is like they like confidence, right? When when there's confidence in the economy, the market goes up. And right. that's very similar to raising money. One of my fellow female founders who is phenomenal at raising money, she's also someone I go to and she's she's great. But she actually told she recommended to me this uh, book called Mastering the VC Game. Um and oh, that great. actually has, yeah, that's actually been really, really helpful. Okay, great. I'm glad you mentioned that. Well, we are so out of time and I wish I had another 30 minutes because we could go on. So I wanted to thank you so much for being on Startup Hacks today. You, um, your story and your insights are so helpful to listeners and, and I'm sure they really enjoyed everything that you had to share. So if they would like to get in touch with you or learn more about your work, is there a website you could direct them to or contact? Yeah, if you wanna uh, see more about my work, you can actually go to katikaroy.com, K-A-T-I-C-A-R-O-Y.com. And information about both myself and Pipeline is there as well as the ability to contact me. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you again. And tune in next week for more Startup Hacks. We have another great show you won't want to miss on the secret female founder strategies that can save you time and money when building your business. This podcast is brought to you by Women Entrepreneurs Global, the first startup studio and digital do-it-yourself startup platform for women. For more information on our guests, this podcast, and many other female founder programs, please visit womenentrepreneurs.global. I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina. See you next week.